Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Basada Outdoors podcast. For this month's episode, we have on a friend of mine, Moss Herberholtz. Moss works at the Radical Wellbeing Center in Southfield, Michigan, where he is currently accepting clients looking for psychedelic integration and adventure therapy. He recently graduated from UMich with his MSW, where he served as the president of the Student Association for Psychedelic Studies. Over the summer, he worked as a therapist for Bami Bar, the first Jewish adventure therapy program in the U.S. In his free time, Moss loves to dance, ID fungus, sing, slackline, and spin fire. Moss is a really cool person. I think this is a really cool conversation where we talk a lot about what's commonly known as sacred plants and fungi. And I hope that y'all enjoy this slightly different conversation than is usually on this podcast. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. Hey, Moss. How's it going? It's going well. How about you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. It's great to see you. Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, thanks so much for being open to this conversation. I'm really excited to have it. We get to hear some more about your outdoor experiences and some really cool stuff that you're doing now. So yeah, let's get underway. Yeah. First of all, where are you located right now? So I'm currently living in Michigan. Nice. The Detroit, Metro Detroit area. Cool. I haven't been out there, but is there a lot of like hiking to be done and mushroom foraging? Because I know that's a that's an interest of yours. Yeah, there there is hiking around here, more so in the Upper Peninsula, but uh, locally we have got some cool spots and some cool fungi also, yeah. Nice. I'm excited to talk more about that. So the way I usually like to start out is by asking people about their introduction to the outdoors. So that would be like, did you grow up in a camping family? Like, did you grow up hiking? Um, were you like a dirt and nature kid kind of thing? Or did that come to you later in life? Like, yeah. What was your introduction? Yeah. So growing up, my family would go camping once or twice a year. Um, and I was also in the Boy Scouts. So I did a, a bit of camping uh, through that. My first backpacking trip was when I was like 12 years old, something like that. Um, and then going to school as an undergrad in Santa Cruz, California and living in the Redwood Forest for six years or five years did a lot uh, for me in terms of my my like outdoor connection. Um, during my time at Santa Cruz, I took part in the Sierra Institute, which is this outdoor education program where I took for six weeks, I went backpacking in three different locations in California and took classes on natural philosophy and eco-psychology and native peoples and all sorts of other topics while being out in the backcountry. And that's actually where my name comes from. Um, my The name Moss is a name that came to me during that program. I, our professor encouraged us to to think of a trail name, mentioned this idea of like an outdoor name or a trail name or a backcountry name. And for some people, they knew what they wanted to be called right away. And for those of us who didn't know, she uh, encouraged us to not try to figure it out, but wait and have an experience and something would come to us and we would know in the moment. So the next day I was adventuring around the Yola Boli Wilderness, which are these rolling hills in Northern California and near the Eel River. I was climbing through these big rocks in my toe shoes and my adventure gloves. And I walk this little passageway and I see this giant wall of moss, these big rocks and just a giant wall of moss. And I was drawn to this wall and I walked up to it and put my hand on the, the wall and uh, knew in that moment that that was my name and have gone by that ever since, which and that was in like 2012. So um, I feel yeah really strongly connected to moss in particular and the more than human world in general. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I, I was actually going to ask you about your name. I have it written down here, name question mark, because I wanted to hear that story again. 
Yeah. So you, you're saying that you grew up camping a little bit and you grew up in the Boy Scouts. That's, that's a cool experience. Was that, was that a cool experience? Um, there are parts of that that I really enjoyed and parts that I enjoyed a little less. Sure. Uh, yeah. Like being able to, to be in, uh, outside, being able to do camping kinds of things was definitely something that brought me a lot of joy uh, in my life, especially as somebody who had a lot of energy to be mm-hmm. able to like, go and hike and, and uh, learn about knots and, and you know, all sorts of other things. It, it definitely did, did me good overall. Sure. That's really cool. And I wanted to ask, what are your favorite ways to recreate outside now? So a few of the things that I really love to do these days are go looking for fungus. I really like identifying fungus. You know, some people are really like going out to try to forage. And I do like finding fungus that I can eat um, or use in some other way. And for me, like the real excitement is is finding weird, cool, new fungus and trying to like learn about it and be like, wow, what, what, look at this weird, colorful mushroom or like check out how it smells. So like it's like this really wonderful way for me to to connect them. The, with the more than human world of like going out and being, you know, looking up, but also like spending a lot of time looking at the ground, looking at the underbrush, looking for these beautiful little organisms that are just hanging out and doing their thing, um, you know, subtly in the forest. Um, another thing that I really like doing outside these days is slack lining, which is like a tight rope that's between two trees. Um, so like balancing on a slack line, I really love going to going on a hike, bringing my slack line and finding, you know, a cool spot to set up my slack line and, and slack line. Um, so those are a couple of the things that really bring me joy in the, in the, in the outdoors these days. Nice. I too love foraging for mushrooms and looking for interesting new fungus, new to me fungus. So I wanted to ask, do you have a specifically like cool story? I'll share one too about like, you just show up and there's a mushroom there and you're like, Oh, that mushroom. So yeah, I've got lots of different, uh, I could tell one that comes to mind in particular was from this summer when I was working as a, a therapist for Bummied Bar and uh, their wilderness therapy program or adventure therapy program. Um, and I, we were going on a hike with the students at the end of the program, climbing up this big mountain called prospector. And we got to the top. It was really beautiful and wonderful and, you know, I noticed a couple of mushrooms here or there, but I didn't get, pay them much mind because they didn't seem to really grab my attention. And then bef- right before we were about to head down the mountain, I go off to relieve myself. And I noticed some ye- yellow mushrooms that look kind of like the ones that I had seen before, but t- you know, didn't seem so significant. And I almost didn't, didn't check them out more closely. I almost brushed them off as being the same kind as the ones I had kind of noticed before, but had the inclination to go and investigate a little further. And upon an investigation, I realized that these are chanterelles, which is like this like highly prized edible fungus. And I got very excited and I gathered them up. I, I looked around, I found even, you know, even more in that, in that area. So just like to go on a hike without like this intention of finding an edible mushroom and having this wonderful, beautiful experience on the top of a mountain. And then to have the icing on the cake be that there's this beautiful, wonderful, magical edible mushroom that I can forage and then cook up later and share with my friends. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I have a similar story. I was like also not looking for mushrooms at all. I was on like a short hike in, I was in Virginia at the time and um, I'm just walking around and I decided to stop for lunch. I brought a sandwich and I think a can of seltzer. So I like go off trail, maybe 50 feet. I see this like beautiful place to sit. So I sit down 
I take out my can of seltzer, I crack it open, and I look right in front of me, like staring me in the face, this chicken of the woods. Like, yeah, so those experiences of like, not, I'm just not looking. And that happens a lot in my experience, and I wanna hear what you have to say about this. Like looking for mushrooms is a lot harder when you're really looking for them in my experience. Like, Mm. yeah, I don't know. It's like this thing that has to be shown to you in a way, Mm. almost not up to you if you find mushrooms. I don't know. What do you have to say about that? Well, it sounds like in that kind of moment, you're not like focused on trying to find a mushroom and then you happen to see it. Something catches your eye and you notice, oh, right there in, in front of me is a mushroom. So the amount of time you spent looking for mushrooms was a millisecond in which you noticed mm. it, identified it, right? Which is different than like going on a hike and spending the hike looking left, right. You know, I spent oftentimes when I go in the woods now, I'm more focused on the ground in front of me looking for mm-hmm signs of fungus so i'm spending the entire hike looking for fungus and i find one here you know here or there but a lot of the time i'm not finding fungus right then it's like the percentage of time that i've spent searching as opposed to finding is different from like those magical wonderful moments when i'm not that's not my intention i'm not focused on where is the cool fungus and then it just suddenly pops out and is there in, in front of me in this magical beautiful way yeah i think that's a really good point it's like a perspective shift almost and that might be coming from your, like you just mentioned before, you're a therapist. Uh, that's actually how we know each other was through working at Bamidbar, a Jewish wilderness slash adventure therapy program. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, adventure therapy, nature as kind of a healing force. And then we'll get into some other cool healing factors that you've been researching and working on that come from nature also. But yeah, in the adventure therapy, wilderness therapy realm, what have you, what's in your experience, some of the value there, not from like a research standpoint, from more of like a moss standpoint? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the power of adventure therapy, like, like maybe people don't know what adventure therapy is or they do, but it's like utilizing experiences, you know, or challenges um, to like better understand the difficulties or challenges in our lives. So like having those, so, you know, being presented with some challenge in the woods, like out in, out in the outdoors or not in an, in an office and being like going through an experience that then elicits memory and uh, sensory input and, and allows us to kind of have this direct experience of learning um, can be really powerful. Um, and like, you know, I've had a lot of moments in my life that weren't even necessarily within the adventure therapy context, um, but were these moments of like having an experience and then being like, oh, wow, this is just like this difficult thing that I'm having or, Oh, this, I can transfer this knowledge or understanding that I just gained about this specific activity to the rest of my life. Right. If I'm, if I'm walking in the woods and I'm looking down, like looking at the ground for fungus, you know, there have been moments where I notice, Oh, I'm spending a lot of time looking down and I can look up. And if I look mm. up it's a whole nother world and there's so much more to, to see, right. Even that kind of experience through like the the lens of adventure therapy is like, oh, this experience that I had, I can now, like I can create metaphor and be like, oh, you know, maybe I'm looking down at the small thing, you know, difficulties that are arising in my life. Maybe I'm looking down at these like problems that come up for me in small ways throughout my day and like a lot of time focusing on them. And maybe like it's helpful for me or, and in fact, it has been helpful for me to sometimes take a bigger view, to to look up, you know, metaphorically, Mm. 
and say, oh, that you know, yes, like this thing is really hard or this thing really sucks in this moment. And in the grand, grander scheme of things, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be all right. There are really wonderful, amazing things going on for me, right? So like to be able to utilize that kind of experience in an intentional way, whether or not it's in an office or in the back country on top of a mountain, right? Or on Zoom even, mm-hmm. um, like like the, the power of adventure therapy, the power of metaphor making and like meaning making out of like actual physical experiences rather than just sitting and talking and processing and reflecting, which have their value as well. Um, so I think like that's something that really excites me about adventure therapy in particular. That combined with like an, an outdoor setting, right, is part of what maybe constitutes like wilderness therapy. Mm-hmm. This like idea of being in the backcountry, being amongst more than human life forms, um, like can have this really profound impact. I know that I've, even though I go, I work um, at a therapy, like a wilderness therapy program, and I've worked for Bamidbar in various capacities since their beginning in 2018. Like, yes, I'm going to help support individual students in their healing and growth process. And, you know, one of the like benefits for me personally in the job, you know, maybe you know, some, some jobs come with like a benefit of like life insurance or healthcare or, you know, a 401k or whatnot. For me, one of the benefits of working for a wilderness therapy program is that I get to spend elongated periods of time in the morning and have like that, like really is healing and regulating for me, you know, being able to like see my place amongst uh, an interconnected ecosystem of life and non-life, but like being in this world and not spending all of my time in a in a, in a room, in a box, um, cut off from all sorts of other life that like can be really powerful, like to have that time to listen to the sounds of the natural world, to hear the other organisms that are yeah. living other forces, like the wind and the water, like having separation from these like constructed environments in which I spend most of my time in a city, in a home, in a, in a computer world. Mm-hmm. So to have that time in the backcountry, especially when it's for a longer period, sure. right? Provides me with a lot of regulation. And so like combining that, those kinds of experiences along with these experiential learning pieces that come that adventure therapy entails, like is just like, yeah, two really powerful things that like also have this wonderful synergy and create something you can create something even more powerful for for those who experience it. So yeah, totally. Are, I love that. So I'm, so I'm really invested in doing adventure therapy in and out of offices. Also like doing ecotherapy, which is where you're just going on a hike while having your sessions, like sure. just like trying to integrate as much more than human world into what I provide to people and, and helping them find healing and personal growth in the ways that they want to, the better, the more. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. I really like what you're saying about the connection to the not human world being like inherently therapeutic. And also, I, I liked what you were saying about facing these challenges through whether it's hiking prospector, like you're talking about, which I was there. That was a pretty tough hike. It was hot that day. We saw people, we saw students not want to go up the mountain who ended up on top of the mountain really happy. And I think, like, like you're saying, that metaphor of like, I can face challenges which are actually really difficult for me and going through all this stuff emotionally, physically and all these things. And I got to the top of the mountain teaching that to ourselves, I think is a really powerful thing. So I appreciate what you're saying about that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot that uh, there's a lot uh, there in the like 
going on a hike, like what, what kind of um, understanding and insight can be gleaned from that experience of like, yeah, I spent the whole time, you know, for some of our students, they spend the whole time telling themselves, I can't do this. I can't do this. Sure. And they, and they push through it regardless. And when they get to the top, they say, Oh, I can do this. I can, you know, uh, and that they can take that back with them and into their lives and recognize that, you know, they can do hard things. Yeah. And there's and then, Nala shaking who also did that hike. What a cute little puppy. <laughs> it's that wonderful little more than human organism. Yeah, there you go. It's a great way to stay connected to the more than human world also. Yeah, amen. So another really interesting connection to the non to the more than human world that I wanted to talk to you about is some of the research that I know that you've done around psychedelic medicine, specifically how it relates to the natural world and what's commonly known as sacred plants and fungi. Um, so I wanted to know some more about the, the research being done there, some of the, the, yeah, what's going on in the therapy world when it comes to integrating these plant medicines. Yeah, so I'm currently working as a psychedelic integration therapist at the Radical Wellbeing Center, which is in Southfield, Michigan. Um, and I've been following the research around the therapeutic use of psychedelics for a dec- about a decade now. Um, there's a lot happening in the world of psychedelic therapy research. Um, and along with substances like MDMA or ketamine that are being researched or being used in, in research or, or for ket- in the case of a ketamine outside of research because it's legally it's the legal option that's available now, mm-hmm. you know, psilocybin or the, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms is also something that's, there's a lot of focus on in research. Um, right now it's, you know, maybe three to five years away from being given approval by the FDA for treatment resistant depression. And yeah, there's like lots of people have powerful experiences on using psychedelics, both within a therapeutic context and without, and people have been using psychedelics um, in all sorts of ways for millennia, you know, native peoples have used psychedelic plants and fungi like, uh, peyote, like San Pedro, like uh, psilocybin mushrooms, um, in ritual, in ritual practice. Um, yeah, and there's in- some people talking about some really interesting, uh, things historically when it comes to the Jewish tradition and psychedelic medicine also. Yeah, there's an ongoing conference. So I'm also involved in something called the Jewish Entheogenic Society, which is a, oh, a cool. run uh, that's focused around the intersection of Judaism and psychedelics or entheogens, which is a, a, another term for a psychedelic that has more of a spiritual or uh, religious God mm-hmm. text to it. Um, and so there's a lot of people talking about the intersection of Judaism and psychedelics. There's, you know, maybe some discussion about, oh, what if this this person like historically used psychedelics? You know, there's evidence at uh, I think it was Tel Arad that was this uh, there was like uh, came out a couple of years ago at, at this Tel in, in Israel Palestine um, where they found remnants of of uh, cannabis oil on this mm-hmm. altar, these other substances. So yes, there's like conversation about the use of plant like psychedelic or mind altering plants or uh fungi within the jewish tradition potentially um yeah there's also yeah i don't know how much more i I, I think there's a lot that i could say about that and there's also i'm interested so you're welcome to say as much as you want well i mean like there's yeah there's like conversation about whether or not the ingredients that are necessary for the creation of a substance like ayahuasca, which I don't know if you're familiar with ayahuasca, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a combination of roots and plants that, uh, that, um, 
are you have been used in South America for millennia again. Um, and the active ingredient in that combination of things is DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is a chemical, a, a very powerful psychedelic chemical that exists in every single human being and many other organisms produce it endogenously in our, in our bodies. Um, and there's all sorts of things that we could talk about related to that. I have a friend actually here at the University of Michigan who's a PhD candidate specifically studying DMT in in the in people in in, in yeah the body. Wow. But there, you know, there's there's conversation about whether or not specific plants that exist in uh, historic uh, Israel or in that part of the world generally might have in combination might have been able to like might have been combined in a way similar to the way that the roots and plants are combined in South America to create something like ayahuasca, something like this this DMT um, substance, and whether or not that was part of some sort of sacred ritual within Judaism. Uh, like during the time of the temples or before or after or who knows right yeah. another conversation is like it like what is the relevance like is that actually like likely or is that kind of just like a hearsay thing that people like kind of wish and hope were true who knows right and then the other question is like how useful is it like who cares like is that really helpful to know whether or not um that those things were used it's fun to think about you know there are instances in the torah that talk about you know, like at Mount Sinai, where all of the people saw color and 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 heard smell, right? Or, or saw synesthesia. Yeah. So, like this example of synesthesia, of collective synesthesia, which is something that is often connected to or associated with the use of psychedelics or entheogens. Um, so, like, yeah, it's fun to like think about oh, what you know, postulate about whether or not um, whether or not that was part of Judaism historically. And there are people like. Rabbi Zachter Shalomi and and Rabbi R. Green, who have been who were in the fifties and sixties, were taught were using psychedelics and talking mm-hmm. about the potential use of psychedelics as like a means of creating um, meaningful spiritual experience and practice within Judaism. So yeah. there's a, like the Jewish Entheogenic Society, which I'm a moderator for. It's like it's like a reemergence of something that was happening in the fifties and sixties and has been happening. Uh, you know, the, the guy who created the Jewish Entheogenic Society is Rabbi Zach Kamenetz. He mm-hmm. runs a nonprofit called Shefa, which is a Jewish psychedelic integration support nonprofit. Um, I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, but like he took part in a study um, a number of years back that was a study of get, uh, that was done. I think at John Hopkins or it was Stanford. Okay. I can't remember. You can fact check me, but the point being that he was, he was a part of this study that was giving psychedelics, giving psilocybin to clergy. So priests and pastors and rabbis and imams and other sorts of people who are like religious leaders. And part of the, one of the requirements was that um, the people in the study had to have not ever taken a psychedelic before. And for, and you know, there's these antidotes of uh, antidotes about, like them having like a notoriously difficult time finding rabbis to take part in the study, not because of a lack of interest, but because of the fact that a lot of rabbis had already taken psychedelics. Right. So like, there's like, there's a lot of psychedelic use that's used recreationally or for intentional spiritual religious practice practice out in the world, even though a lot of them are illegal. And so like, what does it like, what does it mean? What would it mean to like create safe and supportive containers within the Jewish community to allow people to kind of integrate and understand whatever kinds of experiences they have that might be really powerful on a spiritual level through the lens of Judaism. What would it mean 
to like integrate the use of these powerful plant, sacred plants and fungi, um, which actually there are Jewish organizations like Darche Refua on the East Coast and others that, that are um, you're trying to incorporate psilocybin, magic mushrooms in this intentional, spiritual, religious way um, as part of their earnest religious practice. What does it mean to like utilize the power of these amazing more than human, human organisms to like create insight and understanding and spiritual connection and then like integrate those experiences into our everyday communities, Jewishly or otherwise, right? Like these, these, these plants, these fungi like have this incredible potential to like create insight and learning and understanding within people. And so, and like, so why not like utilize that in a safe, supportive, intentional way um, within these community, within communities to like create more um, like meaning and color and, and uh, intentionality in our in our lives. Yes, so I, I want to like make sure to be very clear that like so like psychedelic plants and fungi are not a panacea. They're not going to fix everybody within a therapeutic context, right? There are risks that are involved. They're not for everybody. Having the right intention, the right set and setting, or keva and kavana, if you want to use Jewish terminology. Um, Who came up with keva and kavana? Who That's came good. up with that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I would guess that Rabbi Art Green and Zalman Shekster Shalomi were, were probably talking about Keva and Kavanaugh way back when. Because um, set and setting point. is a Timothy Leary thing, right? Yeah. Well, and, a- and the first time that Rabbi Zalman Shekster Shalomi ever took psychedelics, he took LSD. He was, he was working at, uh, at a Ramah camp on the <laughs> East Coast. And on a day off, he met up with Timothy Leary who gave him LSD and, and like sat, sat there and supported him through his experience. So there's a connection there, but you know, and who knows? Yeah. Like this idea of sets, like mindset of like being in an intentional space and being in a setting that's supportive, like a place an environment that's supporting and supportive and safe and those kinds of things is really important in terms of having, uh, you know, psychedelic experiences um, that are helpful rather than unhelpful or, or that are challenging, but in ways, that are able to, to be worked through as opposed to fought against. Um, and yeah, Keva and Kavana of container and intention, like uh, is like a really beautiful kind of parallel within, within Judaism. And it's like, those are terms that are being used uh, within the Jewish and theogenic society. So, so yeah, like, yeah. Thinking about the more than human world and, and how we relate to it and thinking about, the place of something like a, a psychedelic mushroom to like provide us with an opportunity to like better understand ourselves, to like find new insight in our lives, even though it's not going to fix everything. It's not like some magical cure for, you know, mental health challenges, mm-hmm. uh, but to just like think about the ways in which we can use these tools for helping people find healing and, and, and growth in their lives especially for people who have not been helped by things like pharmaceuticals. Don't get me wrong. Pharmaceuticals do help lots of people. Sure. Mm-hmm. I've been helped by pharmaceuticals. Me too. Also, right. And mm-hmm. at the same time, there's a lot of people for which they do not work or they are actively harmful. Totally. And so to provide alternatives to help people utilize these kinds of substances in within a therapeutic context as like a catalyst for for like healing or movement in their growth process, right? And there's still a lot of work that like the most important part of psychedelic therapy is integration. Is like what happens? Mm. What, what you what like? What does a person do with the things that come up during a psychedelic experience? How do they imply apply those lessons? How do they make the changes intentionally and and, and methodically in their life? 
like after the, the, the fact that's the most important part right um yeah i kind of lost my my train of thought but no that, that was great talk about this you know i could talk on and on about this this is my second favorite topic of conversation my first being uh, the racist war on drugs and why it makes it the world more dangerous for all people those who you didn't use the drugs and who do not but i won't uh, yeah, I know this isn't necessarily the place to go about that. So I'm happy. Yeah. No, I'd be happy to talk about how that relates to what we were actually just talking about. Like you brought up how the Jewish entheogenic society is kind of revitalizing what was happening in the fifties and sixties. And a lot of what's going on in the research is, is really similar. There was a lot of research on these things going on in the fifties and sixties that was stopped because of this war on drugs. And because of the criminalization of drugs at large, psychedelics and anything that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies couldn't make money off of. So, yeah, I definitely see how that is connected. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, right. So the racist war on drugs actually started in the 20s, was started Mm -hmm. in the 20s by Harry Anslinger. And right, the more recent war on racist war on drugs uh, started by Nixon, yeah. um, right, like stifled lots and lots of what was incredible research being done on the utilization of psychedelic plants and fungi um, for helping people find healing. Um, so like to have all of that research tragically quashed because of this agenda, this racist agenda to try to control anti-war protesters and black people um, through il- making drugs, these specific drugs illegal um, is, is, yeah, it's a tragedy. Um, and the fact that, and the fact that like, now we're getting to a place where psychedelic research is is on the rise again, thanks to tireless efforts of organizations like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and Rick Joblin, who is who created that organization and who is Jewish, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that's a whole other thing that we could talk about. Rick Doblin's talking about the use of psychedelics and what would it look like to have a psychedelic bar mitzvah, like him and his own experience, like having not had an experience during his bar mitzvah that he thought would be this like this like bar mitzvah you know, is in like rite of passage. No, like, well, yeah, he had his bar mitzvah, his actual Jewish bar mitzvah was not this like magical, impactful rite of passage that he thought it was. And then a few years later, when he took psychedelics for the first time, that was the kind of experience that he had, which I can actually relate to um, in the fact that I had a bar mitzvah and, you know, it was a bar mitzvah, but it didn't like create like some sort of fire within me to like really be passionate about Judaism or like really feel connected or integrated into my Jewish community. Um, and then I took psychedelics for the first time when I was 16 and I had this epiphany that many people have of like recognizing and realizing the interconnectedness of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, for me, like this bar mitzvah, this thing that's supposed to be like this right of this impactful, powerful rite of passage that like brings me into adulthood. Didn't, didn't quite do that. It, I wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a bad experience. I enjoyed the experience and it was not the kind of rite of passage that I had on my own in the woods with my friends when I was 16, where I had this incredible realization of, you know, the earth, the living earth below me, all of these more than human, you know, life forms, are, I'm connected to them. Right. So like, so yeah. So Rick Doblin actually, you know, it's also actually something that Rabbi Shaktar Shalomi talked about. Like what would it look like to have an intentional space within the Jewish community where somebody could be, could take a psychedelic as a rite of passage um, and be supported by the community, be, you know, held by the community, by the, the keva, the container of their, their community, their family. Um, what would that look like? 
what, what would it have looked like for me to have my first psychedelic experience not in the woods, which is a perfectly fine place to have it, right? And I had a wonderful time. Well, and that that looks very different from what it would have looked like if I had taken a psychedelic with my family and my friends and my community there to like help support me through my experience and to honor that experience and to and to like welcome me back and welcome the insights and um, epiphanies that I had during that experience and and be able to like help me integrate that and, and like make meaning of that in my life. Like, wouldn't that be beautiful and amazing? Yeah, totally. It it's like it's bringing back to me what we were talking about earlier about why I think it is valuable to think about whether these things were used in our tradition historically, mm-hmm. because like there are traditions where this exists as a rite of passage, right? Many native, many native yeah, peoples have for millennia been, been doing exactly this. Yeah. So I don't know if it's curiosity. Yeah. I guess it's curiosity to know if thousands of years ago we were like, our tradition was doing the same thing. Right. I, I, I think, I also think that's interesting. And I'm personally like all years in terms of having that conversation. And I think that, yeah, so there's value in having that conversation and regardless of whether or not it happened then, regardless of whether or not it happened in the past, yeah. what would like, can we, like, what would it look like to do that now? Right. People like Zach, Rabbi Zach Kamenetz would tell you, people are having psychedelic experiences all the time. Yeah. Where people are doing it regardless of whether or not it's legal and illegal. And mm-hmm. they're and they're, you know, coming to profound insights or epiphanies or understandings about their life or the world around them. And then they're left, they're at a loss for exactly how to like make meaning of that or how to bring that back to their lives or their communities. Right. So what would it look like to have a Jewish community that is able to like open uh, openly acknowledge and intentionally support? Uh, people who have had those insights and and give them a frame of reference, give them a lens through which to, to like find meaning uh, in the ways that works for them or makes sense for them, depending on where they are in their Jewish journey. Um, after having taken a, 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 you know entheogenic substance, a psychedelic substance. Mm. Yeah, I like that, and that kind of plays well into what is usually my last question. But what? And I want to ask you this question when it, in the way it relates to both these sacred plants as well as the adventure and wilderness, just more than human world. But yeah, what are your like goals personally? What are your hopes when it comes to the Jewish community and how we relate to these things? Yeah, two different kind of questions. One about yeah. nature. Like the more the human world, and more one about psychedelic plants and fungi, and also a third question about the combination of the two, right? So, like I, and in terms of like, what do I like? I would love for there to be more integration in Judaism with the more than human world, right? Like we, like originally, like way back when, there was more connection with the with the world in Jewish practice and Jewish tradition. You know, we have these festivals like Sukkot, which was intended like as like a harvest festival in the mm-hmm. historic land of Israel, right? And like this land-based Judaism, which is, is actually, you know, coming back, there's things like w- wilderness Torah and, mm-hmm. you know, Adama and urban Adama and like, and Teva, like these, there are these programs, organizations that are really working to try to create more Judaism, like wilderness-based Judaism, nature-based Judaism. And I really want to support those, those efforts. Um, in terms of like the, yeah. And, and like, in terms of like the use of psychedelic plants and fungi, like I would love 
to like live in a world where there's a community or communities in which those are an accepted part of the of the practice or there's like space and room to talk about those kinds of experiences there's lots of other places in judaism where you know uh, mystical type experiences or or mind altered you know states are talked about or discussed or expected right like during Purim, like there's a, a mitzvah, sure. there's a commandment to be drunk, right? Like there, are, there's you know different things that we could say about what that means and how that's inclusive of people who don't use substances, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And like within like within Judaism, there's like there's always been, to my knowledge, like an acceptance of mind alteration, right? Wine as a symbol of joy, as a part of ritual practice, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's always been a part of Judaism. In, which is different from certain forms of Christianity or Islam or other religions that that say you can't use any sort of substances, you can't alter your mind in any way. Right? Judaism has has, to my knowledge, always been a religion that has like embraced these like different states of consciousness. So like, I would love to live in a world that like is able to like yeah, there there is more support and care and love around the use of psychedelic plants and fungi within Jewish Jewish practice within like. Or to like understand or integrate experiences with psychedelic psychedelic plants and fungi through a Jewish lens. So like I would love to for there to be a Jewish psychedelic therapy retreat center. Better yet, a Jewish adventure psychedelic therapy <laughs> center. You know, somewhere in the world where people could go to have meaningful outdoor psychedelic experiences that can then be understood through the lens of Judaism. Right. Like if I want to fantasize about like my future, it would be to like be a therapist or like help run a Jewish adventure psychedelic therapy retreat center, right? So that's like a, maybe a smaller term lens of like what I would like for my, what I would envision for my future as opposed to the Jewish community at large. And there's lots of things that we could talk about in terms of, um, of uh, the, psychi- the, the, uh, the Jewish community at large and, you know, what maybe changes I would like to see. But yeah, that's a little bit of what I, I have to say about um about what I envision for the, the the future of Judaism in relation to the more than human world and in relation to the utilization of, uh, of psychedelic plants and fungi. Of course, you know, um, a Jewish community that embraces the use of psychedelic plants and fungi in ritual practice requires those substances to be legal or those substances to be allowed to be used within a religious setting, um, it, like safely, right? Like there are, you know, there's like, yeah, um, there are, certain people the native you know the 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 native american church for example uses peyote even though it's illegal because of the united states of states governments like separation of church and state there are places like in oakland that bob otis like has a psychedelic church where he him and his congregants are like intentionally using psychedelics um as a like a, an earnest part of their religious practice um so there is like you know darhe rafua and um you know, is trying to also maybe work towards like having religious exemption for the use of the earnest and like honest use of psychedelic plants and fungi within Judaism. And it becomes much more accessible if and when the, the racist war on drugs ends, if and when psychedelic plants and fungi become decriminalized and legalized, right? Um, so, yeah. those kind of, so, the, so like the end of the racist war on drugs is a, uh, a step towards this envisioned future that I, that I see for the Jewish community or hope for, for the Jewish community. Yeah. And I think a step towards that decriminalization is also just destigmatization of these, like we were talking about so much, like classically and currently sacred plants and fungi, which people unfortunately still have misconceptions about 
I think the work that you're doing, the research that's going into it, both your own research and in the field at large is going to do a lot to bring a lot of healing to people. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing to integrate all the, yeah, the adventure parts, the psychedelic parts. It's all really, I think, coming together to create a beautiful whole of, uh, yeah, just of healing. So yeah, I'm excited to hear more about what you have planned for this future. Yeah, I'm also excited. And yeah, like a lot of the stigma is intentionally created through propaganda, again, as an intentional part of the racist war on drugs. Um, yeah, and like some of the work that I'm doing is like, as a grad student at the University of Michigan, I was the president of the Student Association for Psychedelic Studies, or SAPS, and we we helped to, to put on an event called EntheoFest, which is actually happening again on September 18th, uh, this Sunday, the second year, but as an advocacy event. Uh, celebrating the decriminalization of psychedelic plants and fungi in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And since the, the passage of that resolution, which is in which is in 2020, um, there have been a proliferation of cities and counties in, in Michigan. And there's even language that's been written to try to get a, a, a statewide bill, a bill passed or voted on by um, residents, uh, citizens of, of Michigan to decriminalize psychedelic plants and fungi. So yeah. like I'm to have been able to be a part of organizing the original EntheoFest. And I'm also going to be speaking at, again at this next upcoming one. Um, and I've also like just to share a little bit about the research that I've been a part of at last year's EntheoFest, we there was a, a survey disseminated to learn about people's knowledge of psychedelic plants and fungi and also and their personal use of psychedelic plants and fungi and the integration of uh, their use with their medical care. So, like, mm -hmm. you know, we have a study that that came out already um, called "Naturalistic Psychedelic Use: A World Apart from Clinical Care." That like uh, shared showed information about how people's use of psychedelics doesn't align and doesn't align with their what they, how they would like to use them in regard to their clinical care. So, like believing that, like wanting to talk to the doctor about it, but not b being confident that the doctor like has enough, like knows enough about psychedelics. Yeah. Right, to help them. So um, so I'm just like grateful to be a part of ongoing research to better understand people's attitudes and like desires for like their psychedelic, their use of psychedelics, how it integrates into clinical their clinical care um, and and beyond. We have another study, we have another survey that we're gonna disseminate at this year's EntheoFest. So there's more research to come. And, and that's like part of like what and stigma is like having a better understanding of like who's using the, these substances and, and how they would like it to be a, a part of their clinical care. Another big important thing about ending stigma is like, is like people coming out as being users of psychedelic plants and fungi. So for me right. to say, I, Moss Herberholtz, ha have since I was 16 years old, used psychedelic plants and fungi. I've used them, you know, on average, maybe once or twice a year. And mm -hmm. I can do them in a, in a safe way, in a way that's not harming anyone else, that's not hurting anyone else. That sometimes for me is just for fun, and sometimes ends up like you know creating these like really important, helpful insights for myself. But to just be able to say, yeah, I used to get like plants and fungi for my own use. So what? Like yeah. that, more people who do that, like the better. And um, and we could say the same thing about about other drug use also. To say, yeah, I use you know, I, you know, I used cannabis for a long time. I personally don't anymore. Haven't mm -hmm. since. Because I can no longer have a healthy relationship with that substance, okay. and I used it for a long time because it was like really helpful for me. And mm -hmm. so, so what? You know, um, yeah. Sure. Like the more people that do that, the, the the closer we'll move towards a world in which drug use isn't seen as a something that's uh, immoral or criminal, but recognized as like something that is used for like people like 
to help them or just for fun. And like, what's wrong with, you know, in, engaging and having experiences for, for the sake of enjoyment or connection or. Yeah. I mean, I use cannabis in my personal life. It helps me a lot. The world of plants, the destigmatization. And I mean, when it comes to stigma and yeah, it's never useful, but I think it is important to differentiate when we're talking between these sacred plants and fun, fungi that have been used historically for you know, a long time to help people heal versus things that have been created in the past little bit that maybe have less evidence behind them. I'm not talking about MDMA or any, or that, but like, you know, things typically classified as hard drugs. Yeah. I would, I would have to push back on that and say that, no, like things like people can use, there's a lot of people who use heroin uh, fun in a, in a safe and responsible way. And those kind and like, yeah, like we could talk about the like exceptionalism kind of conversation around psychedelic plants and fungi. And I personally don't subscribe to that. I believe that all drugs um, should be legal and, and regulated by the government so that they are more safe for people's consumption, just like alcohol became much more safe after the prohibition ended. Um, and that people who use heroin for because they're hurting and they need help or just for the enjoyment um, are people too who are like, yeah, and so what? Um, if they want to like change their relationship to it, that like, I would love to help them if they are harming others, if they're harming their children or other people, like that's another conversation and needs to be taken seriously. Um, and again, it isn't like the fault of a drug or a behavior. It's the fact that someone is hurting and suffering and using a substance in a way that's helping them, even if it's also causing harm. And so we can address the harm without shaming a person for, for using heroin um, or cocaine or whatever it is. Um, so yeah. Well, Moss, Thank you so much for being open to this conversation and for having this conversation with me. I think you had some really cool things to say about both adventure therapy, your own kind of history. I, I love the story about your name. I'll always love that story. And specifically what we were talking about when it comes to the use of sacred plants and fungi in a healthy, safe, healing way. I really appreciated that and what you were saying about how we can integrate that into the Jewish community. So I guess before we end, is there anything, any plugs you want to make, anything you want to say to the peeps? Sure. I'm working as a psychedelic integration therapist in the Metro Detroit area. So if you or anyone you know is looking for, for a psychedelic integration therapist, you can find me at the Radical Wellbeing Center's website. I also do work with people dealing with non-monogamy challenges and trans people and queer people and people who are neurodiverse. And I'm also... I've, interested in doing adventure therapy so awesome well i'll put a link to your to that bio that you sent me great uh so people can check that out and also can i plug your instagram sure yeah you can tell people about my poi spinning slacklining instagram yeah moss is a really talented poi spinner he also does it in some really beautiful places so check his instagram at at mossy poi if i'm not mistaken m zero yeah. So highly suggest that you'll get some really cool content of him doing some really cool things in really cool places. It's true. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Moss. Thank you. I'd like to thank Moss for being open to having this conversation with me, where we talk about a lot of interesting things, including how he got his name. Sacred plants and fungi are a big topic in this conversation. I hope they all found that interesting. There's a lot of research going on around that right now in the field of mental health as we spoke about. So if you're interested, you can reach out to Moss at Mossy Poi on Instagram, Moss with a zero. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation and we'll speak soon.